Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. And which athletes come back flat and anxious? There is no doubt that sport has the ability to inspire and the ability to heal. Uh, I am very keen to follow is how sports will deal with the issue of how to accommodate transgender athletes. Comfort is no longer the, you know, determinant of optimality. The, the technology is always a useful tool, but it's often oversold. Welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. My name is Mike Finch. I'm your host, and as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. But uh, as we are recording this, like the rest of the world, in fact, I think three quarters of the world are holed up in their houses in some sort of isolation. Um, and wherever you are, we hope that you are dealing with this and getting through it and finding ways to entertain yourselves, staying safe and looking after each other. So that was just a clip from the intro of our podcast on uh, April the 7th, 2020, and it was entitled Sport, Exercise and Health in the Age of Corona. And uh, you can hear, and when I listened to the podcast uh, myself in preparation for this podcast, you could hear the anxiety in my voice because we were right in the middle. I think we were two weeks into our sort of big lockdown here in South Africa where the only time we could actually leave the house was to go shopping. We couldn't exercise. We couldn't get on our bikes unless we were riding indoors and we were confined to the places that we lived. Now, of course, around the world that happened, we saw images of people running on balconies just to try and get a bit of exercise. And it has been an incredible year and uh, not only in the world of sport, but I think an incredible year in the history of mankind. And and uh, I'm sure for all of you listening to this podcast, you'll be glad to see the back of 2020. So in this podcast today, we're going to look at back at some of the stuff that happened in 2020, um, to kind of wrapping up uh, what has been a very epic year in many different ways, so both good and bad. Uh, but most importantly, we're going to look towards 2021. And we've uh, invited many of our previous guests, some of the world's best experts in the various fields that we get involved with to talk about what they're looking forward to in the world of sports science in 2021. But Ross, kind of... Give us a bit of a pricey of your 2020, because when we did that podcast back on April the 7th, we were literally able, only able to do it via a Zoom call. We couldn't sit um, with each other and actually have this conversation like we are today. We are socially distanced today on the other side, opposite side of our studio. But, you know, back then we couldn't even leave our houses. Yeah, the, the best indication of what 2020 has meant is that when we sat down to discuss doing a year in review podcast, we said, actually, let's look ahead. <laughs> let's actually spend as little time as possible looking in the rearview yeah. mirror. We will, but mostly let's actually just turn the page and say, what's going to happen in 2021 that excites us? Because 2020 has been, well, just disappointing is not the right word. No, it's been apocalyptic. Yeah, it's been, it's been surreal. I mean, who would have thought a year ago that we'd be in a situation where we were looking forward to the Olympic Games, mm. to having all sorts of guests on the show. And in the end, we didn't get the Olympics. We haven't been able to get as many guests as we'd have liked to do. Mm. It's still been a very interesting year. I mean, yeah. if I look back at the things that I've done professionally this year, they've been heavily influenced by COVID. Mm. Um, we did some podcasts on COVID and it, it was 
I guess in that sense, fairly cool to be plugged in to mm. the world's conversation. But yeah, I mean, do you remember I said, everyone was saying lockdown a couple of weeks, we'll be out of this. And I remember saying to you, I think it'll be a few months. Yeah. And here we are in December. And okay, we're out of lockdown. But well, we're nobody, one. nobody is, uh, nobody should be comfortable and confident no. that we're going to get back to any kind of normal anytime soon. Hopefully, a vaccine accelerates the return to some kind of normal. Yeah. By middle of next year, let's hope optimistically. But if anything, 2020 has shown us the folly of certainty, you know, um, mm -hmm. you plan and you're certain and confident. And then all of a sudden, like on a global scale, everything gets pulled out from under you. Mm. I mean, it's amazing to think that the that something as small as that can be seen under a microscope, that it's a debate whether it's alive or not, can actually destroy the world the way it has uh, this year. I mean, I mean, without getting overly scientific about viruses, I mean, viruses are these sort of things that float around in the air but infect you, but aren't qualified as living organisms, are they? Yeah, I remember studying viruses in undergrad, which is going back way too long for me to have any confidence in my memory of them. <laughs> But um, yeah, this has been, it, it's been very interesting. I, I consumed so much information early on mm. about the virus. I must be honest, I've, I've, I've tried deliberately not to lately because like most things in the world, sport and non-sport related, it's become so polarized now mm. that you could spend half an hour on Twitter or the internet and not know where anything is true and what's false. It's just crazy. Yeah. And that's going to happen the most frustrating thing about 2021 is going to be people's reactions to the vaccine. Should you mm. get it? Should you not? That I can already tell that I'm going to be annoyed by that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's been there's it's enough been really memes out there talking about should I have the vaccine or not. <laughs> so, so 2020 is the year where everyone became an epidemiologist, a virologist, and a public health expert. That's yeah. how it's been. Oh, you should wear a mask. You shouldn't wear a mask. We should lock down. We shouldn't lock down. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. But like you, you mentioned the anxiety. Can you imagine how many people who are in less comfortable situations than mm. you and I? Yeah. More vulnerable financially, economically, emotionally, because maybe they have some underlying things already coming into a lockdown. Mm. I mean, I, the, the damage to people psychologically and emotionally might never be quantified. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's 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 not it's not even easy. You can but you can at least count cases and deaths due to the virus. But mm. it's just uh, it's the whole quite world scary. is suffering from PTSD, basically. Yeah, in ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that the changes in a generation. I mean, it could take mm. years before mm. the world emerges properly from this. See, the interesting thing, I mean, we, we've discussed the Nevada event that we both invited to a couple of days ago. We won't mention what it was, but you talked a bit about the effects of this. And we've, I see a lot on the, online about this sort of COVID um, fatigue that creeps in. Eventually people get sick and tired of it. Oh, I'm tired of putting on the mask. I'm tired of not seeing friends. We went to an event the other day where I left the event early because when I got there, it was a bit too crowded. Nobody was wearing masks. I kind of felt that you know the protocols weren't in place that I felt comfortable with. Um, you 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 were you were there, but you were sort of staying on the on the fringes mm. outside that social group, um, and a lot of those people in that space who are very healthy, fit individuals, there was a sense of like invincibility. Mm. I felt in that group, whereas maybe for me because I've got you know I'm seeing mother-in-laws part some of the time. I'm a bit conscious of the fact that I don't want to put them in a difficult position, so I'm probably more cautious. But I felt like the the uncool kid leaving the party early, mm. um, as opposed to all the other cool kids that were like 
uh, we're, we're going to be okay. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting thing that the mask wearing, social distancing dynamic. I mean, I've left restaurants where I've gone in there and I've looked around and I've said, you know, this restaurant is, is 150 square meters and there are easily 120 people here. No thanks, yeah. I'm out of here. Yeah. Because an indoor space. Do you work it out like that? Well, I... I <laughs> <laughs> meters per square I do consider that because yeah. I, I look and I think well it's your no matter where I sit here I'm within two two meters of four mm. other people yeah why would I you see and the, the biggest anxiety for me like le is less about myself it's more about the same thing you're saying is I get this and I infect people who are mm. close to me and who are vulnerable yeah and then because you see it's all good and well to say the risk to me as a young fit well youngish yeah <laughs> fit person is so low but that's pretty selfish if you don't yeah. then take the next step and say actually but maybe i'm going to be the cause of someone who's not as yeah. fortunate healthy or protected as i am and that's been the biggest source so mm. i'm sure most listeners can relate is at least five times in the last few months i've had a headache or a sore throat <laughs> or something and i go oh man and yeah. then i start tallying up in my mind four days ago where yeah. was oh i saw my folks two days ago now i'm anxious for 10 days yeah and that's the thing that like is just, so I felt that this year I'm on a permanent five out of 10 on anxiety. Yeah. You know, never, yeah. never less than four, never more than six, but it's just always there. It's always there. And it wears on you because it's, it's, and that's why yeah. I think we're all so keen to just flip the page yeah. and go ahead. But I think, you know, I read these mask discussions, the discussion about lockdown. I think a lot of people are, they're apathetic now because they, you know, people want to move on. And then I think some are defiant. Yeah. And whether it's apathy or defiance really doesn't matter, I suppose, in the end. But I think a lot of people had their agency taken away from them. They mm. had vacations planned. They had trips. They had, in some instances, weddings, birthdays, whatever it was. Mm. And they couldn't do them. Sporting goals. And sporting goals. <laughs> yeah. Events cancelled. And because they had their agency taken away from them, they're expressing their resistance in mm. ways that include, don't tell me to wear a mask. I'm yeah. not going to do that. And it's just... If all of society just took responsibility for the next person instead of themselves, this would have been 50% better than it's been. And unfortunately, I mean, you see this in some countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Like, let's be honest. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's probably an index of communal selflessness, which mm. is predictive of how well the community deals with a thing like this. And I reckon yeah. that's... So anyway, let's see what 20... Yeah. And the same is going to go for the vaccines. Yeah. If people... People must understand that you're not doing it for yourself. Yeah. And because uh, that's an interesting thing, the whole vaccine. I mean, we obviously want to focus on the fact that we're talking about sports science here, but there is, it does relate that by taking a vaccine, I remember somebody describing why you should take the flu vaccine every year because it's not about necessarily stopping yourself getting flu, it's mm -hmm. about reducing the fact that the flu can spread. So if everybody t took the, the flu vaccine and everybody takes the COVID vaccine, mm. it means that the chance of it spreading to people who are vulnerable are obviously very limited. And you yeah. actually shut down that virus. Assuming, and, and I said I, I read a lot about COVID early on, uh, April, May, June, then less. Since the vaccine announcement, I've started reading more because I want to understand how this is going to work yeah. and why people will be concerned about risks, what are they and so on. The one thing I don't know is fully known yet is whether the vaccine will prevent onward transmission. Because... The premise, remember, is that you, Mike, will get this vaccine. Mm. And that means that if your body is then later infected or encounters COVID-19, your immune system can deal with it and it'll protect you from symptoms, severe symptoms and even mild. Can you then still transmit that virus for a short period? I don't know. I suspect yeah. not. 
So it will be protective of the community. Mm. But that's the point, which yeah. is not different to masks. And that's where it was frustrating. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'll take my chances. Mm. But you're not taking your chances. You're yeah. taking mine too. Yeah. And that's what I don't think is, mm. is, is good in a society that wants to be reasonable. So, yeah, the vaccine, interesting. I mean, like you said earlier, you've got family members in the UK who are in the queue. Mm. Um, yeah. As playing, of next week. I yeah, mean, I was playing like, around last night. The New York Times has got a, a website that allows you to work out where in the queue you are. Um, based, <laughs> People come up with all sorts of ideas. <laughs> so it's based, because you know, like what they'll do. They don't tell me where we are in South Africa. I don't think I want to know. Well, I don't even know if South Africa's in the, in the, in the <laughs> neighborhood yet. Never mind the queue to enter, enter the building. Uh. Um, it's a function now of your risk profile. So that mm. means age, comorbidities like diabetes, mm. hypertension, and so on, plus your occupation because there are obviously high-risk workers in health. Yeah, and so you enter this little thing on New York Times, and I ended up being 268 millionth in the queue Okay, in the US out of 300 and something odd. So, so the not fact they've only got friends. 50 million doses odd in England means you're, it's going to be quite a while before they even appear in South Africa. Yeah, I think I How many people in the so. world? Six, seven billion? Yeah, seven and a bit billion Seven and a bit billion. Okay, well, so. we'll be we'll be here for a while before we go mm. back to work in a normal space. I imagine. Yeah, I suspect so. And Do you think? I mean, here's a question. I mean, we are going to get on to the stuff we want to talk about today. But given the fact that you've been working so closely with the, with uh, World Rugby at the moment, when the COVID, when the vaccine comes out, will all the players, whether they choose to or not, be required potentially <laughs> to take the vaccine? In other words, as a federation, would they say? You, we, you have to take the vaccine, otherwise you're not playing rugby. That's a good question, and it's one I don't know the answer to. Mm. It's been asked, and we've even spoken to a couple of bioethicists to ask God. what the... I didn't even know there was a thing called bioethicist. Oh, yeah, big, big really? deal, yeah, because you can imagine in any clinical medical trial intervention, uh. there are significant ethical concerns. Uh. And so we had, a, we had a World Rugby Medical Conference a while back, and... One of the questions, one of the sessions was on ethics of research in rugby. And someone took the opportunity to ask about that is can you can you make it a requirement of employment to actually have the vaccine, which is a pretty interesting one. And I would love to give you an answer, but I, I can't. Yeah. So we'll see in the new year. What, do you, what would your thoughts be? I mean, can you would you be willing to say what your thoughts would be in that situation? I would say that if the if the evidence exists, and you see this conference was a while back before mm. the announcement of these vaccines and before the clinical trial results started coming in. But the way that those clinical trial results are going, and we have the benefit now of a couple of months worth of more as people get vaccinated, this is a this is a giant research study now that's mm. going on. If the evidence shows that they're safe, then absolutely. Because mm -hmm. the way I would frame it is you've got two risks here. You've got the risk of the vaccine versus the risk of the virus. Yeah. And really it's just a question of which is lower. Yeah. And if it's lower, to have the vaccine, then then yeah. I would think that you want to try and compel it. I don't know that you can force it and make it a requirement of employment. There's probably a legal thing. Mm. There's probably a dozen legal things. I'm just trampling all over there now. But mm. that would be my desire would be that it becomes yeah. compulsory, if not legal. Those are the same things. Yeah. But you know what I'm getting at. Well, that's one of the stories we're going to watch for 2021 to see how that's rolled out, particularly in professional sport, because that is our area of of expertise, well, sports in general, really. I mean, where will people be allowed to participate based on whether they take that vaccine or not? So let's look to 2021. Of course, the big story, potentially, and I asked you this question before we went on onto the pod, um, we cancelled the Olympics this year. Will it happen in 2021, do you think, realistically? Yeah, yeah I think so. 
Why, be, why do you say that? I mean, I just said five minutes ago the folly of making certain predictions, and now here <laughs> I sit and I'm, I've probably butchered legal employment stuff, and now <laughs> I'm about to mess up my predictive abilities. I think it'll happen because the stakes are so high to not mm. have it happen. There's a lot to lose. You think about broadcast rights, and mm. and I mean, even if you want to luckily be a little less cynical and you want to just talk about athletes, because you, you see, you can't postpone it again. Because mm-hmm. now you've got a six-year gap and a two-year gap, and that's yeah. not really going to work. So it's all on. It's you know, it's it's twenty twenty-one or bust. Yeah, and bust has too many implications for athletes, for the for Japan, who've in, invested billions. Not even sure of how many, but a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I would imagine that they will do what they can to make it happen. And it's on, it's on July twenty-third will be the opening ceremony. That is seven and a bit months away now. Eight. Yeah. That seems to me to be long enough given the suggestion of how effective this vaccine is, yeah. I would imagine that Japan will be very efficient and effective at getting that vaccine out within Japan. Yeah. And then it just becomes a question of how you deliver the Olympics. Maybe it's scaled back to 50% crowds. Mm. Maybe there's a requirement of athletes who are going to stay in the village to have a vaccine. I mean, that's that's the case. If I want to go to Cameroon in West Africa, I remember having to do this once, mm. yellow fever shot, off I go, otherwise I'm turned away at the airport. Uh, TB in England's the same thing, right? So so there will be ways that you can deliver the Olympics in the safest possible way. Yeah. And I think what the second half of 2020 showed, the silver lining is that if you take the necessary precautions, you can make sport work. Yeah. We saw dense cycling and yeah admittedly with a couple of events falling by the wayside um but for the most part they delivered those things we've got three grand tours done with minimal not zero but minimal disruption Mm. um we've seen cricket tours we've seen rugby events so i think that it's doable people have learned it might not be convenient but Mm. it'll happen yeah well, I certainly look forward to that. And I know that Ross and I have talked a little bit about uh, when we started our podcast off this year, we were looking at doing Olympic specials around some of those niche sports. And uh, I mean, we're quite looking forward to doing that, talking about mm. those events like rowing. And um, I think we might one or two that you mentioned, but wrestling, you know, mm. I'm, we're fascinated to talk to people who are specialists in those areas about those sports. And we look forward to doing that this year. And I imagine that we'll know, I guess, by sort of March, April, whether it's happening or not, because they would need to make an announcement because athletes need to prepare for the Olympics. Don't yeah. They? And that was the yeah. biggest, uh, the biggest uncertainty for the athletes is because from March through to about June, qualification for the Olympics stopped. So yeah. everyone's like, well, how do we even get in? Yeah. Now they can at least, yeah. So the, the, the plan, you plan backwards. Yeah. You know that, obviously. You say, where do I want to get to? And um, you, you start at Z or Z mm. for Americans, and then you work out the rest of the alphabet. And I was the thing I was most excited for about this podcast in 2020 was the science of the Olympic series. Because <laughs> I watch, and you know that one of the great athletes in the Games is going to be Simone Biles. And I watch this and I'm thinking, that looks so impressive. Yeah. But I don't really understand it. Why is she doing something that no one else can do? What, what is, is it about? What is it a half, what is a half pike? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the <laughs> it's not a fishing the, term. That's the basic um, stuff. I mean, yeah. so, so explore gymnastics. Yeah. What determines success? Why is Simone Biles so much better than everyone mm. else before her? Uh, fencing. I watch fencing. And I see just a blur of activity and then someone holds their head in despair and the other one celebrates. And I'm like, 
Okay, I need six replays. You can't see if they're sad or not because they've got a mask on. I don't know what's... <laughs> so, so there's so many sports yeah, that are yeah. foreign to me and the, the opportunity to unpack that for, for listeners in a scientific way is pretty cool. And that's, yeah. that's the plan for 2021. So selfishly, so you, I so, hope it goes ahead. So if you are one of the people that, are, that believe you're an expert in some of these smaller sports Olympic games, get a hold of us on our, uh, on our Twitter feed because we'd love to hear from you. We're obviously going to do some investigations ourselves in those sort of areas. But if, they, if you have, you know, if you know somebody or you are someone who really understands some of these uh, smaller sports, um, we're really interested to chat to you guys and see exactly how those things are unpacked and how they work because I guess knowledge is power when it comes to watching Olympic sports that we don't often watch. Because the more you know, the more you actually enjoy and appreciate the sport itself. I get all my value from understanding. Not, yeah. I mean, obviously you can appreciate. And in fact, on that note, some of the most complimentary feedback we received on the podcast this year was some people who said they don't even watch the Tour de France, mm. but they loved the podcast on it. <laughs> and their their experience of the tour is scenery, mountains, lakes, and and French towns and cities and monuments, churches. Mm. But now you're giving them some insight, which unlocks a whole other side of it. And that's, so that's really exciting for 2021 yeah. for me. That's the thing I'm most looking forward to yeah just to pick up on what you were talking about in terms of some of the feedback we've got i just must make mention to some of the amazing support we've had of on our patreon sites from our supporters over the last year we started our patreon sites and now ross was looking into that about halfway through this year and we've had really a lot of support and we really do appreciate it. i know ross has got some shout outs from some of our new patreon uh, members uh, over the last uh, month or so yeah it's been a while since our last podcast we apologize but year end madness yeah so there's a few names to get through here as you know patron is where you go on and if you enjoy the podcast you can donate and uh keep mike and i going and coffee's coffee supply and so on uh and so and we've got a few we had this morning got yeah. a few since the last one so thanks and welcome to the family from ben jones dennis healy ben hoy john shuttleworth and those are those are the that that's a group of people who've joined us at the Olympic athlete level. Mm -hmm. There's three tiers. Then we've got a couple who've joined us at the Olympic champion level. They are Lisa Rood, Sam Bark, Pete Williams, and then we have one special Olympic legend who is Chris Bryson. That's our top tier. So those are the people who've joined since last time. Thanks very much. We really yep. appreciate it. And the other thing we do want to do which i appreciate we haven't done all that well is let you drive the conversation mm -hmm. so have dedicated episodes for the patrons and also allow you to ask your questions and drive some of the content request what it is you want to hear and we'll we'll get to some of that now i guess as we mm. as we play in our expert voice notes and some of your contributions to that discussion well there's been some lovely stories i, I was at an event uh, just on two weeks ago where a women's cycling team called breaking barriers was the participant in an event here in south africa called the double century which is this 202 kilometer stage race, uh, not stage race, I wish it was a stage race, but single day race. It was incredibly tough on that day. I actually didn't finish. I got to 125 Ks and got pulled off the course. We had incredible temperatures and winds and all sorts of things to deal with. But uh, while we were sort of mingling in an in a open air after event function, um, a young lady from the team came along and said, I love your podcast. I listen to it. And what we, I work for a, a company here in Cape Town that does sports socks versus socks. 
And uh, we play this on our sort of uh, company sound system. We, we play your podcast when you release a new one. So oh, hello to the Versus Stocks team. Um, thank you very much for your support. And first thing. I wonder, I wonder, do they not have real radio because they have listened to us? <laughs> so the but, first thing that comes to my mind is that like I have these visions of North Korea where they will just play some sort of government <laughs> message over the tannoy and everyone has to listen to it. Everybody has Except to in this to case, it. it's legit listening. So you just keep doing and it. And it's voluntary. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so hello to the people from Versus Socks if you're listening to this podcast. We really do appreciate the support. Anyway, so on to the subject of 2021. And what we did uh, in the build-up to this podcast is Ross has been uh, active on Twitter, as he always is. And uh, we were asking a lot of our Twitter followers, our Patreon members, to give us some feedback about what they are looking forward to in 2021 and we also got hold of uh, many of the experts that we've spoken to uh, over the last couple of years and asked them for their sort of predictions and they uh, each of them sent in a bit of a voice note and what it's given us is an opportunity to be able to engage with some of the subjects that these experts and you guys as supporters and twitter followers and those uh, people who listen to the pod are able to engage with us. So we're, we're gonna play a couple of those uh, voice notes. And the first one was from Christy Ashwanden, who we had as a guest uh, earlier. In fact, she was the last podcast we did before the COVID-19 uh, pandemic thing hit. And uh, we were talking to her about uh, the, everything you know about recovery maybe BS, um, which we talked a little bit about uh, how recovery and all the things we know about recovery might be a little bit rubbish. But this was Christine Ashwanden talking about what she's expecting in 2021. Hi, I'm Christy Ashwanden, the author of Good To Go, a book all about the science of recovery. What athletic news am I looking forward to in 2021? Well, first, I'm really eager to see if and how they managed to pull off the Summer Olympics. What will that look like in the age of COVID? Um, how, how are things going to be different? I think that will be really interesting. But what I'm most interested to see is how elite endurance athletes have managed during the pandemic. I'm really curious to see who comes back extra rested and ready and who has taken the break from competition to round out their training. Writing my book really drove home to me how draining and detrimental travel can be for performance. Who's taken the break from the relentless travel as a time to train harder and, and do more with recovery? And who has benefited from the mental break? And which athletes come back flat and anxious? I think this break will be a good showcase of who is on top of their mental game and was able to really harness this unexpected and unwanted break for good. And, you know, who spiraled into a hole and couldn't manage the uncertainty of this time. I anticipate that there will be some really interesting lessons on training and sports psychology that come out of this year we've had. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what those are. So thanks, Christy. And uh, if you want to know all about what Christy's been doing, she has written a number of books with her book, Good To Go, as she mentions there, a lot about the science or non-science of recovery. But to Ross, raising some good um, subjects there, uh, for, I think most importantly, one of the things we discussed this year is the effect of things like fans on performance. I mean, we, we've seen soccer matches in Europe and the stadiums are completely empty. One of the interesting things I saw was how um, WWE wrestling is doing it. And they've literally got these screens up around the, the entire, I can't believe I actually watched WWE wrestling the other day, but it was, was it was by I, mistake I was gonna while say I was watching X on the beach. But I know, anyway. I know that your sons have left home. They've finished varsity. <laughs> I know that your daughter's three or four. So you have, have no you have no excuse. If your son was 11, I'd be, okay, I can see that. But anyway, go the on. The point I'm trying to make is that different sports have made plans around how they get supporters involved. But it, it has had a profound effect, or, or has it? 
Yeah, the NBA did the same. Remember, they were in a bubble to finish their playoffs and they'd have screens. I remember Obama's mm. face appeared on one of them and that was a news item for a day. That's cool. Um, so it, it has made a difference. And in fact, I've actually done a couple of radio interviews this year about that because people are quite interested. And one of the interesting things going into post-lockdown sport where there were going to be no fans was how would it affect home ground advantage? Because one of the major sources of home advantage is fan support. In an interesting way, probably two ways. One is the team playing at home obviously has 80, 90% of the fans supporting them. It becomes their cauldron. It becomes their turf. And that changes the psychology of the home team relative to the away team. The away mm. team tends to go in. And I, I remember this from playing sevens with South Africa, or not playing, but being on, this, on the staff. Mm. Like playing New Zealand in Wellington was tough because it felt more intimidating. And it might have been a psychological placebo effect for all I knew. Playing Scotland in, at Murrayfield was difficult. Playing yeah. England in Twickenham was a much more difficult proposition than playing them in Dubai, anyways. Yeah. And then the other way that it manifests, which I've always found fascinating, is it subconsciously seems to bias the referee. And there was a famous yeah. study that was done, I forget when, years ago, where referees had to watch a video clip on a television screen. So this isn't even real life. There's no real threat to them. But with the sound on, their decision is different compared to with the sound off. And the difference is that when they see a foul, they are more likely to penalize the away team than the home team. And they're more likely to issue yellow cards and red cards against the visiting team than the home team. And the Gee, thinking yes. was that the reaction of the fans steers or nudges the referee into making a decision. And so when the home team commits the offense, the fans keep quiet, the referee ignores the foul. When the away team commits the offense, 60,000 people bay for blood and the referee gives them what they've asked for. And that must be subconscious. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's like he's not doing it on purpose. Because so I suppose it, you don't want to be shouted at. I mean, it's, it's a simple case of if you do penalize the home team and the crowd are all going to shout at you and boo and that sort of so, thing. So, so, you're right. So there's the reaction at the time of the event and then there's the reaction to your decision after the event. Yeah. And they're both loaded in favor of the home team. And so it's been known for quite That's a while known. that home teams are much less likely to be penalized and are much more likely to win penalties. Across and, all sports? Yeah, in the sports where this happens. So in yeah. rugby, it's true. In football, it had been documented. Mm. I think in ice hockey and basketball, the same thing had been shown. Yeah. So a lot of people were paying attention to that when sport returned. And sure enough, that was found. So in the German Bundesliga, which was the first one to return, home ground advantage reduced in size. So the home team won less often in an empty stadium than in a full stadium. Sure. And they also found, and I want to give you the exact number, with an audience, the home team is penalized 48.6% of the fouls go against the home team. And without them, it's 505 So that's not a massive difference. It's no. a 2% swing. But what it means is that the home team is more likely to be punished when the stadium is empty than when it's full. Sure. They're also less likely to get away with yellow card fouls. Mm. And so if that's worth one or two incidents a game, one penalty every five matches, those are decisive to the outcome. And so sure enough, across 63 leagues around the world, we're talking now Europe and South America mainly, home ground advantage reduces by about 2% on average. So sure. where in five years... Before lockdown, 2015 to 19, home teams used to win 44.3% of matches. They're now winning 42% of matches. So it's not a massive difference, but it's a difference. And without COVID, we would never have been able to do that study. So, so there's an opportunistic study that a few That's people amazing. have been able to do. So there's a paper published in a journal called Frontiers, 
uh, in Sports and Living by Marcus Tulp and Sigrid Taller. And the heading is, the title is COVID-19 has turned home advantage into home disadvantage in the German soccer Bundesliga. So that, wow. that's an example of how yeah, it plays out. That's amazing. Then the other thing that was interesting is because now you'd have track and field without fans and you think, well, surely they're going to be slower. There was no indication that that happened. We yeah. saw world records by chapter guy yeah. running in front of either empty, well, not, not completely empty. There were some athletes and people in this, standing on the side of the track, but certainly not your 20,000 people cheering and clapping along for you. Mm. Two world records. He set a world record on the road in Monaco where basically no one even knew he was running. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite interesting that the, that's, the, that's the one where I thought they would be worse. In the, in the Vuelta and in the Tour de France and Giro, when there were climbs without spectators, they weren't affected. No. And so they, they seemed less affected there than, than... They might have even been ad, 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 <laughs> advantage because you're possibly. not intimidated by these people shouting and getting in your way. Yeah. You can and, just race. And you can actually ride it in the way you want to without... Mm. Yeah. So... So it's been interesting. So the Very questions are on psychology of athletes in empty stadiums and so on. And, and that was actually raised by one of our patrons, Dina Blacking, raised the same question, uh, effectively asking us about the psychology going into the Olympic Games and how that plays out, similar to Christy. And yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem to have played too much of a dif- or made too much of a difference on, on the athletes. Just back to football, actually, a couple of people did analyses on how many sprints a player would attempt, how many meters a player would run in a match. And they yeah. also found no difference before and after. Yeah. And so it seems as though the intensity of what the athletes do is not affected by the crowds, which is yeah. pretty interesting. I suppose a good sign in terms of their intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Sedina yeah. says, given the continuing uncertainty, the interaction between psychology and physiology is one that interests me. For example, athletes trying to perform an empty stadia, races taking place on empty roads, athletes trying to plan a program to peak in the face of uncertain and shifting calendars. I mean, the last part of that is also what Christy talks about in her, in her voice note mm. to us. What will we expect to see at the Olympic Games in terms of performance? Will yeah. we see athletes, because of the disruption of 2020, will they be in better shape because they've had this year almost as a break, mentally and physically? Will they be in worse shape because they've lost the momentum and the rhythm of their training? Mm. I mean, again, uh, are there answers to those questions? They're so complex, but it's really interesting. And, and in fact, one of our other patrons, Mike James, who's one of our Olympic legends, thanks for your support, Mike, raised a similar question is how do you perform with a delay to the preparation now that was a big issue in april may mm. and, and i forget exactly when the decision was made but when the decision was made i think it became an advantage and i know because i've i've, I've got a relationship with a couple of the high performance guys here in south africa in particular the the guy who runs our, our rowing program and i know for a fact that they were very put out and uncertain when there wasn't a target to aim for. Yeah. Because the athlete also loses purpose. Yeah. It's very difficult to wake up at 4.30 in the morning and suffer the way that an elite rower has to suffer in the winter. That happens in, in amateur sport as well if you <laughs> don't have a goal. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. When you don't actually know that this is all geared towards the 6th of August, whatever it is. Yeah. The moment that the commitment was made to a new date, I think it reframed it and it actually gave them the benefit of time. And so now they could say actually... We have, a, we have a year here without competition, without travel stress. Let's reboot the system and mm-hmm. we'll try and come back stronger. So what we saw in September, October from athletes was no difference to performance. If, in fact, 
if anything, performing better. Mm. Though <laughs> when it comes to judging running performance, who knows? Because now they've got these shoes which confound the comparisons <laughs> anyway. So that's where it gets complex. It's another story. That's, and we'll get to that <laughs> yes. in a moment. So, so we don't really know, but I can't, I can't see that Olympic athletes will be affected. The other thing that could happen is that you go into the Olympics and some countries are in lockdown and others are not. I mean, I know, I think it was in Ireland recently, yeah. they reimposed a limit. You couldn't train beyond five kilometers from your home. Now, imagine you're an elite runner, you'll be doing 30 laps around your block. Yeah. That's not ideal. Yeah. Uh, many of the Kenyan athletes going into London said the same thing, is that they couldn't get out and do their normal training work. I don't think that that's going to happen in 2021 leading into the Olympics. So I, I think that we'll be on, at least in that respect, a level playing field. Mm. The other big elephant in the room, and many of you raised this on Twitter, I've, I've, we've got the name somewhere, but we won't go into it now, is in, in a global lockdown, how do you test for drug use? There is no such thing as anti-doping. And in fact, Germany acknowledged that their testing program had to be cut 95%. The data coming out of UK anti-doping showed a similar 95% reduction. In the UK, they went in each quarter for the last year before that from doing about 2,500 tests a quarter to doing 126. So they did, they did 5% of their normal testing volume. It's now... Well, it worries me a little bit, to be honest, exactly. doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, it's now in the, in the <laughs> second quarter of 2020, which they've just published recently, they're back up to 1,400. So they're, they're at 50% capacity now. They were at 5% capacity in May, June, July. Now, the, 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 the problem here is anti-doping experts will always tell you that the testing is the disincentive. Yeah. It, no, nobody believes that the testing completely stops the doping practice because you can be intelligent, you can avoid them, you can dope under the radar, but at least what testing does is it adds a little bit of a challenge, a barrier, makes it awkward, uncomfortable, inconvenient. You dope less, less often, less effectively. Mm. Therefore, if that's true, then the removal of testing removes the disincentives. So of course, people are going to try and take chances. Yeah. I can't see how you can pretend that the lockdown-induced doping thing will not affect athletes at all. It has to. Yeah. So... I mean, how, we, we've got to be reasonably cynical in that space to understand that athletes will take... Some athletes will yeah, take advantage. Of course. Because the, they can. Some athletes are taking advantage while there is testing. They disappear to places that are remote where testers can't get to. Yeah. Well, <laughs> during lockdown, central London was a place testers couldn't get to. Yeah. I mean, Cape Town, Rondebosch yeah. was a place testers couldn't get to. Yeah. You couldn't get anywhere. And so they could do it. The only, the only silver lining is that the athletes couldn't train normally either. And so given that the benefit of doping is realized through training, you could make a case to say that actually, they, let them, not, not let them dope, but mm. we can actually... Maybe cancel themselves out. Yeah, yeah. and I don't, I don't think it would entirely cancel out, but you could be optimistic about it. And the other thing is, and I don't fully agree with this, is I've seen some anti-doping experts say that because the athletes had no competition, they couldn't dope smartly. They couldn't dope in preparation for something. But I don't think doping works that way anymore because nowadays you microdose. It's not like you shoot up three weeks before the big event and no. go in there glowing. These days it's about microdosing, staying under the radar, managing recovery. That's what it's doing. Yeah. Allowing you to train harder. And so if I'm an athlete through June, July, August, and I've got virtually no chance of being tested, I'm doping so that I can build a really solid base 
in those months that I know I can then leverage into better performance once I resume. So that's the concern. And I, I'm sure that there will be some outrageous performances as a consequence of the, the, the removal of anti-doping oversight. Yeah. And we won't know what they are. And that's the, that's the problem. I mean, the case could be made that the one thing we know for certain is that most people weren't able to train the way they were normally able to train. So in, the, in that way, it's a level playing field. So if there was athletes doping, they would still have an advantage because everybody had the disadvantage of not being able to train. So, yeah. And so you could go yeah, crazy trying to guess so this and theories. figure it out and so on. But you have to be mm. concerned about it because, mm. you know, one of the... And I mean, we've got a couple of high-profile cases of athletes missing tests. Noah, not Noah Lyles, sorry, Noah Lyles. Christian Coleman, yeah, who's the the guy who was favoured to win the hundred, has now got a two-year ban, which he is appealing at CAS. So that ban will be heard in twenty twenty-one. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about it when it happens. I didn't do it, but yeah, and he's he's saying that they didn't follow procedure. Yeah, so. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, so if, if, if athletes are being punished for not being where they're meant to be when they're tested, then that's because the system recognized yeah. that you have to be tested in order to be trustworthy. And if you're not tested, you're not. So yeah. it's, yeah. A, it's, it's lousy for athletes because there's a question yeah. mark not of their own making, but you know that some of them have exploited this opportunity for sure. Well, thank goodness I'm not an elite athlete. Never will be. I never need to get tested. Yeah, silver linings. Right, so that was, yeah, Christy, thank you very much for that. And, uh, of course, if you uh, look at a lot of Christy's writings, she's a regular contributor to very many of the top uh, health and fitness publications around the world and fascinating to chat to her last year. If you want to look back on that podcast, it was uh, on the late March and I think it was episode number three of our 2020 series and a really interesting one around uh, recovery and some of the sort of theories around recovery which uh, you can pretty much question and say well they're, they're not that true so Christy's done a lot of research into that uh, sort of space anyway next up was uh, Trent Stellingworth who we spoke to in quite a lot of depth earlier this year around the condition of red S and it was, it was the year before this was it the year before this time flies see, time flies it was over a year ago actually it was when it was when Mary Kane came out with her accounts of what it was like under Salazar and then we spoke to Trent and, and his wife in a discussion about go. reds which was really interesting and yeah we asked him to share us a clip on what he's most looking forward to in 2021 there we go it was actually i'm just looking i should have looked this up before but it was the third last episode of 2019 and it was called mary cannon red s when weight loss affects performance and uh, trent was an amazing uh, guest and he had some thoughts around uh, 2021 Hi, Ross. Hi, listeners. It's really great to be able to make a few comments at the tail end here of 2020 on what we're looking forward to in 2021. My name is uh, Trent Stellingworth, and I'm a senior advisor at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. And I was on the Real Science of Sports podcast in November of 2019 with my wife, Hillary, discussing aspects of relative energy deficiency in sport. I think in 2021, And I know in 2021, we're going to continue to see an explosion of research around women's health, women's performance, 
and aspects of REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport. We've already had an explosion of uh, and an uptick in, in research, but with that, um, I've recently taken on a world-class postdoc, Ida Haikura, who came from Australia here to Canada, and she has started a two-year postdoc with us. I know Dr. Kate Ackerman, a REDS researcher out of Harvard, has something big brewing up around female athletes that will probably be announced in 2021. Luis Burke, Kate Ackerman, Kirsty Elliott-Sale, and myself are all co-supervising um, a soon-to-be-announced PhD student out of Luis's lab, and her uh, or his PhD are going to explore female-specific performance. And then there's initial talk, of potentially in 2021, but maybe 2022, that the IOC will have a whole bunch of us back to do another consensus statement on the REDS clinical assessment tool. So all told, there's probably about eight to 10 different reviews and projects in the hopper in this uh, content area. Finally, for 2021, I really look forward to a progressive and stepwise um, normalcy with COVID-2019. Um, there is no doubt that sport has the ability to inspire and the ability to heal. And I really hope that 2021 sport is allowed to do this. And I hope I can be involved in some of that um, inspiration as we move forward. Thanks a lot, Ross. Thanks for having me on uh, just over a year ago, although it feels like a lifetime ago. And I hope everyone here um, is looking forward to a great 2021. So thanks very much, Trent. And as I say, just over a year ago since we lost to Trent Stanningworth and a very fascinating uh, podcast. You can look back on our podcast in 2019 and uh, see see that one. It uh, certainly still counts today. But I think, Ross, the question is why is there so much research, particularly in women in sport? Because surely at some point women are going to, as, as much as men do, they're going to push the limits of physical boundaries to the point where it becomes unhealthy. Um, and no matter what you do, that's still that's still going to happen. So what's the point in doing this research? Because women are going to push themselves until they break down. So this this research is is in the health interest. Mm. It's in the interest of the athletes to understand exactly where those limits exist and why, so that you can a avoid them and b manage to still achieve performance without running into the health concerns. And to be clear, this REDS is something that does affect men and women. Yeah. But because of the menstrual cycle, it affects women in different ways that can be quite serious and important to understand. It really is. And, you know, women, women are the neglected group in exercise science. I remember when I was an honors student and we had to do our honors research studies, we would go and recruit people. And one of the things you would always say is male cyclists, male runners, male this. Why? because the menstrual cycle is a confounder mm -hmm. and you can't test women and men together because the menstrual cycle is going to affect. But that was the story that we were always given. You see, mm -hmm. that's not really good enough because now you're yes. basing all your knowledge on 50% of the world's population Yeah, and you're failing and to the account. easiest 50%. Yeah, because it's convenient, you see. Yeah. So you really have to do, because I do understand the concern because if the menstrual cycle affects performance and you tested a few women at different stages of that cycle without controlling for it, suddenly your study finding is different yeah. in a way that matters, but you couldn't control. Mm. So I get it, but it's not good enough. Yeah. And so what Trent and the people that he mentioned, Kate and his new PhD student are doing is trying to uncover a little bit about what wasn't known as a consequence of that approach that was taken for, for so long. And it's really important because you know, whether it's for performance in an Olympic athlete or whether it's for health in everyone else listening to this, if exercise is medicine, mm. 
that medicine sometimes causes the problem. You know, it's got side effects. Yeah. And we, we really need to understand those. And so I think it's really interesting. And, you know, we got from our lovely patrons again, we got a few comments on this, actually. So it clearly is something that matters. So Claire Leung, for instance, said, and this is not true, Claire, but you've, you've, you've raised a point that's worth discussing. Probably not so interesting to about 50% of your audience. I'm interested in how hormonal changes, such as menopause, impact the body's ability to train. It actually is really interesting to more than 50%. Yeah. Because we got coaches. So, for instance, Nick Saunders, another patron, has sent us a fairly lengthy and very thoughtful post. Nick is a swimming coach, and he works with boys and girls, and he comments in his post that there are differences in the way that they respond to training. And should a girl at the age of 13, 14, 15, going through all these puberty adolescent changes, do the same things as boys? And mm -hmm. he says, I recognize that they respond differently, but I don't know enough to understand how to change my practice. So coaches and men and athletes and fellow athletes, colleagues, scientists, everyone really mm -hmm. should pay attention. So. We, we have to commit to doing more discussion on this podcast yeah. about that. So, so if, if Trent and his colleagues are willing, we will get them back on and we will explain some of the things around this. Because it is a very complex, as you talk about those young girls starting in sport, and if you're not cognizant of their particular challenges biologically, it, it, it can be quite damaging. And I think one of the things, just to reiterate what you were saying there, is that when you're looking at relative energy deficiency, it's not about the fact that athletes pushing themselves to, to the point where they go into that space. It's the fact that actually their performance will suffer. Mm. I think it's one of the things that Trent said in that podcast we did over a year ago, that the performance actually suffers when you don't take care of the health. Right. So it's not a trade-off. It's, it's not, not like you yeah. choose health or performance. Yeah. You have to choose health in order to get performance. Yeah. And you can, you see, and this is the problem, is you can get performance for a short time at the expense of health, which I think is what reckless or inept coaching and management does yeah. in a lot of the cases. So we get many instances of athletes who are pushed beyond the limit, who develop things like the osteoporosis and the amenorrhea that we discussed with Trent in that podcast, because they can afford to do it for a short time. But the long-term consequences are potentially very damaging to that athlete, especially yeah. the young athlete. And so therefore, Everyone really needs to sit up. What was the Alberta Salazar? So that was Mary Kane. Mary Kane. She said they yeah. were so obsessed about weight loss yeah. that she found herself walking for an hour a day extra, mm. over and above the 100k plus a week of running, to try and lose that extra kilogram or two of weight loss. And so menstrual and she function. She felt this is, pressure to do that. Yeah, exactly. There mm. was the way she told it. They were shamed publicly mm. often into losing weight. The consequences are stress fractures as a consequence of bone density, amenorrhea, problems with fertility that may persist later in life. So these are pitfalls mm. that really have to be avoided, and they're only avoided through knowledge and education. That's, so that's why Trent, and I follow Trent on Twitter. You might do the same yeah. if you're interested in this. He, even this year through lockdown, he was constantly at conferences talking about it, trying to share the message, because it's really a f question of education. Yeah, And so we'll certainly contribute, I hope, to that in the next year. Well, one of our patrons, a chap, is saying, great idea about how hormonal changes, both perimenopause and menopause, impact training ability 
and uh, about sports protecting women. I've heard enough. I've heard about strength training and how it protects women, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So certainly something that we are looking forward mm. to doing potentially a little bit more seriously next year around women yeah. in sport and uh, maybe getting some specialists, not only Trent but other people in that space, to talk about the challenges that women face in sport because uh, obviously it's stuff that we don't necessarily experience. Right, and I mean. Just speaking personally now, last year or this year, 2020, I've been involved in a discussion linked to women's sport quite a lot in the sense that we've done the transgender guidelines, which affect only women's sport. Let's be clear, they yeah. don't affect men's sport, transgender women. And uh, in fact, Chappers, who's Sarah, um, she goes by Chappers on Twitter, Lady Chappers, I think, has been quite a vocal mm. uh I'd say ally, but certainly we've had a lot of discussion around it. So, so that that's another way that it feeds in. Women's Rugby World Cup is in 2021 down in New Zealand. I'm hoping to go to that and have some conferences there at the time. So that's something also to look forward to on the women's sporting front. Great place to ride a bike as well. I know you've been into cycling these days. I'll take mine with. Some lovely riding in New Zealand, although New Zealand is one of the few countries that's probably come out of this, well, so far has been one of the best countries in terms of COVID, but who knows what will happen in 2020. We'll see if they let me in. So that Women's World Cup (laughs) is in September, October. Hopefully by that stage, South Africans are allowed to fly there and not quarantine for exactly a horrible place. One of the most beautiful places in the world and you're stuck in a hotel room. Not good. Right, our next voice note coming courtesy of uh, Tommy Lundberg, um, the sports scientist and uh, physiologist. And just tell us a bit more about Tommy because he he is an interesting character and one of our big listeners. And uh, we haven't had him on the pod so far, but certainly somebody that we uh, respect. Yeah, so Tommy's based in Stockholm at the Karolinska Institute. And he got in touch with me in the month or two after the Casta Semenya trial, which was 2019, February 2019. And he said he's just had this paper published on what happens in trans women when they suppress testosterone for 12 months. Because the sporting policy, the IOC's document, and many sports do this, is they ask trans women to lower their testosterone for 12 months and then they're eligible to compete as women. The idea being that you can fix or take away the performance advantages by taking the testosterone away. And they had done what is still, it was at the time, it still is, the best study so far examining elements of biology with testosterone reduction and they found that very little changes so the strength the muscle mass the lean mass the muscle volume don't really go down by much at all if at all and he let me know about this and then when world rugby began the process of exploring and consulting on its guidelines we visited stockholm for a day myself and the chief medical officer and we sat with him Professor Stefan Ava and Anna Week, who's the lead author of that study, and it was enthralling. I mean, absolutely fascinating to hear their views. No sport had ever asked them for their thoughts on the issue, which and is telling. It's, it's the most critical part <laughs> of the research, isn't because it? Because you see, the fundamental question around the transgender fairness and safety issue is, we know that male have an advantage over female. The typical male is stronger, faster, more powerful, heavier, denser than the strongest female. So the performance advantage is so large that we have a category for women's sport which we close to anyone who gets the benefit of male physiology. The question now is, can you include biological males if they take the testosterone away? So the only thing that matters is does the fix work? Does the reduction of testosterone take away the biological advantages? Yes or no? And when when you've got a And Karolinska is one of the great academic institutions. And when they're doing this research and saying no, 
you have to sit up and take notice. Yeah. And, and not a single sport had ever asked them about the implications of their work until we showed up at their office one day. Anyway, so then jump ahead to 2020. Tommy became one of the uh, experts who presented to us. We held a, a two-day workshop in London, and he was one of the speakers there. And just a, a very clear thinking. You'll hear it in his, in his uh, clip that we're about to play you. He's, he's direct. He doesn't pull the punches. He says what needs to be sa said in the fewest words possible. And I've, I, thoroughly, I find him very stimulating. And so one of his is that. And then the other one is just a really interesting thing he's involved in, in addition to his work on trans athletes. So, yeah, queued up for Tommy. Here's Tommy Lindberg. So about the sports science story I am most looking forward to during 2021, I have to mention two things, really. The first thing... Uh, I am very keen to follow is how sports will deal with the issue of how to accommodate transgender athletes into sport. So much happened here uh, during 2020 with new research coming out, uh, the World Rugby imposed restrictions on transgender women from playing women's rugby and the International Olympic Committee have, po have uh, postponed their revision of their transgender guidelines. So as I see it right now, most sport governing bodies will have to deal with this issue during 2021. And it will be very interesting to see what comes out in terms of new policies, new research, and perhaps new controversies in this area as well. The second thing I'm looking forward to uh, more personally is to finally publish on the mechanisms that can explain why over-the-counter doses of anti-inflammatory drugs can uh, attenuate muscle hypertrophy uh, during resistance training. So the background is that a few years ago we published uh, a study in Acta Physiologica showing that muscle growth was basically cut in half during resistance training with simultaneous intake of ibuprofen for eight weeks. And uh, now we are about to finalize the analysis of, of uh, myofiber data and molecular data that hopefully can shed further light uh, on this interesting uh, finding. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. What I love about all of our voice notes so far is that we've got people from all over the world, a nice Swedish accent in there. So thank you, Tommy. And uh, as Tommy's just said, one of the things he's looking forward to, as you've said in the in the precursor to his uh, voice note, um, you know, the, where does this transgender debate go? So World mm. Rugby has made the decisions. They've established some guidelines. They are guidelines. But is it something that will, all sports will have to now take up for 2021 and beyond? Yes, because the prevalence of transgender athletes in sport will go up yeah. because the, the societal prevalence is going up. So it's a matter of time before it starts to impact sport more and more. And we all anticipated that in Tokyo Olympics, we'd see the first known transgender athlete on the cusp of winning a medal in weightlifting, Lauren Hubbard from New Zealand, mm. probably not quite a, a medalist unless half the field gets disqualified for doping, which is not beyond the realms of possibility. So so that would have been a high-profile story then. It will be in 2021. And there's a few others. I mean, Brazil has a volleyball player, as an Argentina soccer player now playing women's soccer, transgender, last week announced. Uh, so there'll be cases. And when there are cases, sport will have to confront them. The big question is whether sport bases that decision on evidence or social pressures. And as I said, in, in our most recent podcast, I think 3rd of November, yeah. was about the world rugby process. Yeah, in which I tried this to, yeah. And I try to explain how we derived at our decision through evaluating the evidence. The, the, what I've realized since through discussion on Twitter is the very first thing anyone must say to you in this debate is do they believe that women's sports should be closed unless evidence shows that it's safe and fair to open it up? Or do they believe that women's sports should be open 
until evidence shows that it's not fair and safe to open it up. And there's a, there's a fundamental difference between those two. In one of them, you're coming from the perspective that women's sport is necessary and has to exist as a closed category, which we won't open up unless we know it's to be safe. And in the other one, you've got an inclusion mindset, which says, let's put people into women's sport, allow it, and then try and show that it's unsafe. Now, the latter seems to me to be very unfair on women. Yeah. I understand why you would want to do it, but for me, having now spent a couple of years in this space, just seems to ignore the voice of women. And that's where I think sport has gone. And I must say, it's, it's enormously frustrating and disheartening to me because I see no, many scientists making the same, in my opinion, mistake. Their position is by default, open it up and then let's get the evidence. Well, no. Yeah. How, can you, how can you invite that level of arbitrariness into women's sport? You wouldn't do it anywhere else. It's, it just seems wrong to me. And it's been frustrating to engage with scientists who I would have expected a little bit better from. And so that's the question is, are sports going to say we're going to include and then show us that we were wrong? Or are they going to say exclude and then try and prove us wrong? That's how it should be, in my opinion. Yeah. You have to almost preempt what is obvious. Right. And yeah. I understand that there's a human rights issue in the other direction. But there's a human rights issue in both directions. Yeah. Because, because women have the right to a space in sport that belongs to them. And yeah. that's got fundamentally important biological reasons. And so my stance on it is very much that... If, if there's no evidence that it's safe and fair, the category is closed, yeah. full stop. Yeah. And as I said, Tommy produced because one... Because the risks are high yeah, in some risk, of the sports. The risks are high. Yeah. And so Tommy has produced one study of 12 that are pretty suggestive that the testosterone reduction does not take away the biological differences between typical male and typical biological female. And there was a percentage, wasn't there? It depended on the, the magnitude of that percentage depended on the variable, but like so lean mass, 40% yeah. difference, male to female. Reduction in testosterone took 5% of that away. Yeah, which is minimal. So, yeah, strength, yeah. the difference is 30 to 60%. Testosterone reduction takes between 0 and 10% of that away. Yeah, so, so still that, a huge advantage for the transgender athletes. And that's the problem, yeah. it's retained. Now, we get... And I mean, it's been difficult to communicate this. There are limitations in Tommy's study. He acknowledges those. In the other 11 studies, similarly, there are limitations. They're not on elite athletes. Yeah. So there is a question around whether elite athletes would show the same reductions or larger reductions. Presumably, they would be larger because their baselines are higher. Yeah. But at the same time, they're training, and training seems to protect against the loss of muscle mass and strength. So it could be that you, you lose less when you train while your testosterone is going down. That was our yeah. evaluation of the evidence. Yeah. So I don't think, I mean, when you look at some of the policies of other sports, you do not see scientific evidence cited. Mm. Theirs is a position in which they are including and hoping for the best. Mm. And I get why. It would be great if we could achieve a balance between inclusion and fairness and safety. But that will only be possible if the reduction in testosterone achieves its objective of taking those advantages away. And right now, there is no evidence that that happens and a lot of evidence that it doesn't. Yeah. And so the prudent approach is to say to sports, look, if you're going to allow inclusion, you do so despite the presence of these advantages and risks, yeah. not because you've taken them away. At least be honest and own that. And the same message to scientists, I don't know if any of them are listening to this anymore, but if you're <laughs> going to argue for inclusion, at least be honest and own it and say that you're allowing inclusion, even though it might be unfair and risky, because there's no evidence that it's not. So yeah. 
step up, own that, and then fine, we'll disagree, but at least you're being honest. So it's either a societal decision or it's an evidence-based decision. Right, That's at, what the it is. at the moment. Pending yeah. evidence. And World Rugby have committed. So 2021 will involve another assessment of the evidence yeah. because there's a study due any day now from the U.S. military on transgender um, soldiers, recruits in the, in the U.S. Army, who have to do fitness testing. Mm. And so they're going to have quite good data before and after testosterone reductions. So let's see, I, I know what that says. I'm not going to say it because it's the, the paper's job to communicate yeah. that. But in a week from now, you, you look for that paper, see what yeah. it says. And there'll be others. Yeah. And then we have to reassess. Because yeah. if evidence came up and showed that the advantage can be fully removed and there is no longer a safety or a performance advantage, there are still some philosophical issues. But then any basis for exclusion mm. goes away yeah. in terms of performance and safety. Yeah. So then, cool. So the research is not over. It's a living no, document in many ways, isn't it? Nothing's yeah. ever closed. Yeah, so, especially in sports science. Exactly. So <laughs> we will continue to assess it, and that's what Tommy says, is yeah. let's see where they go. Uh, let's see what new evidence emerges. Tommy will continue with his work. I know for a fact he is. Papers will come out, mm. and we can make better decisions. But right now, the way I see it, there is no evidence. No, sorry, there's no good evidence that the fix prescribed by sport achieves its objective. Yeah. And so therefore, I think it is unfair to open the category up until yeah. you have that evidence. Yeah. Well, let's see what 2021 holds in terms of that research. Uh, the second point that he picks up on is this very, the topic that Christy Ashranan actually picked up on her mm. podcast with us last year, talking about anti-inflammatories. Now, mm -hmm. it's quite a groundbreaking study is that suggesting that anti-inflammatories actually have the opposite effect to what the average sports person thinks that they do. Yeah, so the problem with anti-inflammatories is that they work. They do, what the, they do what they claim to, which is to take inflammation away. Yes. The problem is that that's not good because it turns out that the inflammation actually serves quite an important purpose. Yeah. And I remember when we did our supplement episode, the date of which you will tell me shortly, I'll tell earlier, you that was this year, we spoke about one example where you can take antioxidant supplements, which also reduce in this instance, free radicals and inflammation. And there's some evidence that they also blunt the training response. So you're doing this because you think inflammation is bad and you're actually shooting the messenger. Because metabolically and at a molecular level, that st stress of training, whether it's in Tommy's case, weightlifting exercise, strength training, whether it's going for a 45-minute endurance oxidative session so that you can improve your cardiovascular fitness and your metabolic fitness, those adaptations to training actually rely on inflammation. There are signals that are carried by inflammatory processes which drive our bodies to become fitter. And so, for instance, the antioxidant one showed that people don't get the same glucose metabolism benefits when they take antioxidants as they do without them. So the very health benefit that you're training for is actually blunted. And Tommy's, Tommy's data, sure. it's published in a journal, he mentioned it, called Active Physiologica, pretty good. Uh, the first author is Lee Lilja, Lilja, probably messed it up, L-I-L-J-A. Look it up, published in uh, 2017, Active Physiologica. And yeah, basically they found that you get half the response when you take anti-inflammatory. So you, you sell yourself short on your training. I mean, there's a caveat to that. If you are in an event like the Tour de France or something like that, where you've got a lot of pain because your muscles are inflamed, is there not the benefit of taking an anti-inflammatory there? Because you're not necessarily looking for a 
performance recovery benefits you're looking for a reduction of pain so you can perform again the next day so. yes so so you're a tour de france athlete's not interested in what happens in week four correct so whereas a person training is interested in the long-term accumulation of benefit yeah tour de france guys like there's no benefit this is the pinnacle i don't care if i don't walk for a week after this i'm good to go now yeah there are still obviously issues because yeah. the prolonged use, especially of high doses of anti-inflammatories, can be quite damaging to the kidneys, the gut, and so on. Yeah. And in rugby, there have been some accounts of players who've developed chronic issues as a consequence of anti-inflammatories. And I got an email actually from Yanni Brykovic, who used to be a, well, he still is an elite cyclist. I yeah. think he was on Lance's team, to, yeah. uh, Postal. And he said also the, the, the use of anti-inflammatories and painkillers, sort of semi-related, cause problems in elite athletes and mm. so this is a separate concern but yes in terms of the in terms of the adaptation process a sevens player for instance we used to ice in a sevens tournament you play three matches a day yeah. we'd ice those guys ice bath straight after the game yeah. because three hours later we needed them to go again then you want to take inflammation away whereas when they're in training camp you want inflammation to adapt them right yeah. So that I mean, it, it, can we then say that that is that this evidence that Tommy and other evidence has come out is now definitive? We can say that anti-inflammatories, if you're during a training phase, don't see exercise pain or sore muscles as the as the as the devil. In fact, that process is critically important to build strength and performance. I don't know that it's definitive. I don't know what it would take for me to say yes, it's definitive. Yeah. Probably very little. You know me. I'm 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 always non-committal. Hypothesis. <laughs> But for sure, it's a strong it's a strong hypothesis now because it's been shown in various contexts. You've got Tommy mentioning strength research. Mm. We know that cold water immersion ice therapy does the same. From Christy, I've mentioned we in the in the supplement one we spoke about antioxidants. So yes, we know that there is now strong evidence for it. There's not that much evidence for its benefit. So if you adopt a kind of cost benefit equation here really there's there's evidence of cost not really evidence of benefit it would feel, feel foolish then to do it <laughs> so at this point i would always caution someone against yeah. the use of anti-inflammatories unless and the anti-inflammatories are including things like ice water baths in that process in other words if you're training for something right, yeah you're right I sh we should clarify the drug uh, yeah. anything that well reduces as, inflammation as well as anything that reduces inflammation unless you really have to because too much inflammation for too long starts to become damaging yeah because now that inflammation actually exacerbates the problem so you have mm -hmm. to take you have to manage its level but you never want none of it and you don't want too much of it yeah. so we're, we're talking goldilocks here not too hot not too cold not too much not too little mm -hmm. just in the middle and the challenge for physical therapists when you go in there with your sore knee sore calf muscle achilles tendon achy joints is they've got to try and juggle pain relief which means normally taking away inflammation mm. and rehabilitation and recovery which means facilitating its use and that's quite tricky yeah. it causes a lot of confusion to ice or not to ice to take the anti-inflammatory not to it's quite so tricky. i don't have to get into an ice bath tonight after our uh, friday afternoon ride no no the, the drinking cold liquids <laughs> that we do will help but we, we should we should actually do a whole thing on anti-inflammatory yeah, next year because the, the medical risks of taking them i mean we've got ultra culture in this country and comrades and stuff people will start that race literally with 10 anti-inflammatories in a packet in their pocket and some and some and heavy they, ones too. and they will take one hourly until they get to the finish line and then they'll end up with kidney issues and wonder why so it's a oh, it's scary yeah and and by the way in this study of tommy's it was ibuprofen so mm. that's the stuff you get at the pharmacy you all know it 
So we're not talking about prescription drugs here. Yeah. It's over-the-counter stuff. Stuff you can buy without a, you can see a right. doctor. Yeah, I, I got some the other day because I had a sore neck from a yeah. little cycle accident. <laughs> Another cycling Another accident. Another cycling accident. <laughs> I, I got myself some anti-inflammatories, no problem. But here I'm actually undermining my progress. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, thanks so much, Tommy, for that. So our next uh, voice note comes from a gentleman who uh, we obviously lives his brand, a biomechanist and also an elite ultra runner, Jeff Burns, talking a little bit about what he's seeing in terms of the future of shoes and shoe technology. Hello, Ross and Mike. Jeff Burns here. 2021, I am thinking about the shoes, the super shoes, augmented footwear, um, yeah, whatever you want to call them. Um, thinking about those upcoming year, there are there are actually a couple things I would say, a couple storylines within the shoes that I'm looking forward to seeing play out. Um, uh, I'll give you I'll give you four four storylines. Um, say the first one pertains to the the sh different brands um, and all of the ones that we've seen released over the last, we'll say year, year and a half. Um, but especially this year seems like we kind of hit the tidal wave of, you know, Adidas, Saucony, um, uh, you know, New Balance, Brooks, all seem to have shoes that are now kind of following that template that the Vaporfly set, uh, that is, you know, that, uh, Six stack shoe with resilient, compliant midsole and rigid carbon fiber architecture within within the shoe. So yeah, so all the brands have had those, but we don't have any data really on them to tell us are they as good as the Vapor Ply? Um, you know, how much, or if they're not as good by how much, or you know, what what effect do they have on running economy? So because so disentangling. The benefits there, I think, is going to be really important. So, you know, both for fans and consumers, like if we're looking at Adidas or Saucony or whatever, athletes, um, are they, you know, are they on a similar playing field as the Nike athletes? Uh, I'm a consumer. I'm a competitive athlete buying those. I want to know, you know, which ones, how they how they stack up, um, you know, literally and figuratively. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I would say how they compare those, you know, whether it's independent laboratory studies or just maybe more big data analyses that we see start to trickle out, um, really to, to unwrap those, I think, is going to be important. Um, and then within that, within the new, you know, new shoes that have rolled out, um, I think un untangling the individual response to these shoes. Cause like I said, we all, they, they have these common ingredients now, um, in terms of the, you know, the next generation foams with the rigid architecture inside them. Uh, but how we interact with each of those, you know, like the Nike has the distinctive curved plate in the next percent, the plates and the other companies aren't you know, as such, Adidas has, you know, those stiff rods that are, that are curved in there. Um, you know, what, what importance does that play? How do different types of mechanics, maybe different foot strikes respond to those? Um, cause really getting back to it, we only have laboratory data on the original 4%, right? Um, you know, we have, we have three good studies on, on those. 
but since then, the next percent has advanced and moved on, and that's kind of the the standard now in racing, and that's that's uh, sensibly a little bit better than the original Vaporfly. Um, but then we also have the, the Alpha Fly from Nike. That's kind of a um, that's a totally different form. So I mean, even personally speaking, I've I've run quite a bit in both the Alpha Fly and the next percent and comfort wise, the next percent definitely suits my mechanics foot strike better. Um, heart rate response is similar in both of them, but I haven't been able to get in and do metabolic data in our lab on both compared, you know, against each other yet. So I think that's something that I'm very curious about is like all, all of these shoes are definitely going to be they're going to feel different on different people. Um, but I think what we've seen too with the original Vaporfly, um, is that regardless of comfort level, comfort is no longer the you know, determinant of optimality for the shoe for you. There, you know, there could be a shoe that might be uncomfortable that could, you know, present a substantial benefit. So I think understanding, understanding what works for different individual, you know, foot strike types and, um, mechanical patterns will be really important when we have this whole suite of shoes that are different in kind of nuanced ways. So the last time we spoke to Jeff, uh, he was in knee deep in snow and we were in uh, 30 degree degrees Celsius temperatures at the time. So uh, it's very nice to hear from Jeff. Uh, uh, Jeff I always describe as the ultimate uh, biomechanist because he lives and breathes everything that he studies and he really gets involved in uh, some of the mechanics here. And that's why it's so fascinating to chat to. But I guess what Jeff is saying uh, largely is that after the Alpha Fly was launched, all these other brands have bought out shoes that have similar technology in them. Are the playing fields now level? In effect, that's the question. And that's a question many of you raised, actually, on Twitter, I think half a dozen, one of whom was Mari Yamauchi, who uh, was a source of so much satisfaction when she commentated the London Marathon this year, because for the first time, I felt the media did a good job of explaining the intricacies of the shoe. So yeah, thanks for your feedback there again, Mara. I don't know, and neither does Jeff, and he made the valid and I think very interesting point is that... The Vaporfly was a 2016 shoe, the 4%. Remember, it was worn by the medalist in the men's marathon in Rio. Yeah. The study came out probably 2017. I've lost track of the time a little bit there. But since then, we've seen a couple more studies on that shoe and then nothing since. So the next percent, all the rival shoes, Adidas has now got their shoe that was launched a few months ago. No data exists in the public peer-reviewed domain. So we don't know. There was a piece came out a month or so ago in Outside Magazine, which told the story of a Canadian marathon runner, a 224 athlete, very good, Melindy Elmore is the name, and she was contemplating a sponsorship deal and didn't know whether to go for the Nike or a Sarconi deal. And so she went into a laboratory and compared the shoes through a two-day testing series. Now, that's great for her because she had the opportunity to do that. In the end, what this article concludes is that the shoes performed very similarly. She didn't get an advantage in the Nike compared to the Sarconi super shoe equivalent. So yeah. happy days. Off she goes. She's got herself a Sarconi deal. The, the problem is whether that applies to everyone and mm. whether it works across every shoe. So we still have this issue where the result might be determined more by the shoe than by the athletes, mm -hmm. which is the, the opposite of what you want a running event to be. 
And then the other issue, and Jeff alluded to that, is he's run in the two Nike shoes, the Alpha Fly now and the Next Percent, and says that he just can't run well in the Alpha Fly. So even within a shoe, there's an between athlete variation. So mm. it, it's very much like a Formula One setup now where you've got to match the athlete to the shoe. And that just sits uneasy with me because how many athletes can do that? And it also goes against the rules to some extent because the shoes now have to be readily available, have to be available mm. towards six months ahead of competition. Mm. Um, so if you have a shoe that's bespoke for your foot compared to mine, that's not something that you can go buy off the shelves at the local Yeah, store. so presumably at least if they enforce that policy, because let's not forget that was the policy for years before mm. and it was never enforced. I mean, th yeah. there's no way that that shoe would have been allowed in the 2016 mm. Olympics. Mm. And it was the same thing then. You weren't allowed prototypes. That shoe was clearly a prototype. Yeah. And no one did anything about it. So it's one thing to <laughs> have a policy. It's another yeah. thing to enforce it. But it's highlighted now. So I it, guess there will be some level of enforcement in that space. If they can... You see, and one of the things Jeff raised with us is to, to actually understand what's going on with that plate, you need to put the shoe through a CT mm. scan. I mean, mm. how many, or you've got to cut it up at the finish line. And so, so yes, it's enforced in theory. Yeah. Um, so I, I suspect we're better off than we were. If, if the only shoe available was the next percent, and if it was five to six percent more economical, that's a three to four percent in performance benefit, then you'd have a major issue. Now, the, the Adidas, the Asics, the Saucony, the other shoes might have narrowed that gap. Mm. For some athletes like Melinda and Elmore, maybe it takes that gap away. Mm. So cool, we're, we're slightly better off, but it's still an uneasy situation for me. At least we don't have a situation now where one athlete might as well start 800 meters up the road. I mean, that's, how, <laughs> that's yeah. what it was basically like, is two athletes ran the same distance, but I one mean, of them has, worked less do you, hard. Do you think the, ho the horse has bolted in terms of bringing shoes back to, it seems to me is that because the shoe companies have got involved, they've embraced potentially the regulations that we are now looking forward to many years of the super shoe being part of athletics. We're not going to go back to a phase where shoes are not a component of performance. There's no appetite to go backwards. You saw that mm. because earlier this year they had a clean opportunity to do it and they chose to set their limits. World Athletics. Yeah, World yeah. Athletics had yeah. a very clear opportunity to do it. The ball yeah. was on the tee. All they had to do was hit it and they chose to bunt it instead in a direction mm. that confirmed the height. So in setting a stack height as they did, they basically said, we're happy with the status quo. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to put some policies in place to regulate how you play within that status quo. So in other words, no overlapping plates and that sort of stuff. So cool. At least that's something, I suppose, if yeah. we're trying to be optimistic. But no, the, the issue is now decided. Um, it's not, gonna go, it's not going to go back. Right. So there's a watershed yeah. moment that happened mm. sometime in the last few years. It's, we're not going back. And now we go forward. And they will hope that people forget and that normal becomes, well, what's rev revolutionary normal. becomes normal. Yeah. That's a word of 2020, yeah, the new normal. The new norm. um, have, you, have you run in any of these super shoes? Yeah, I, I ran in one and it it, it's very unstable. It, it, after 20 minutes of running in it, I felt actually that I was doing a balance exercise. Are you able to tell us which shirt it was or you want to keep yeah, that it quiet? Yeah, it was the Adidas Pro Plate. And when you put it on, you, you feel like you're being moved forward. Yeah. Which is the same sensation as you get from the Vaporfly, which I've walked in. I haven't run in it. Right. Except for short 100 meter, 100 meter run. So the sensation is the same. They feel like they're doing the same thing. They feel unstable, which 
is a euphemism or in, in running feels like a simile for fast <laughs> and stable equals fast. I guess it's the same in bikes sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the stable thing is the slow one. Yes. The unstable thing is the fast one. It's a nippy. nippy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, it, it so you, you almost have to be running at a pace to feel the benefit of that shoe. And that's the problem for me. I just don't think I'm light enough or fast enough to really realize the, the advantage of it, mm. you know. So, so, I mean, a week ago there was a half marathon in Dubai. The winning time on the women's side was the second fastest in history. Third, fourth, and fifth were also recorded in the same race. And yeah. everyone just says, wow, super fast. And we all know now that it's the shoes. <laughs> yeah. But what's happening is the top 100 in the world list of all time are pretty much all 2018, 19, 20. Yeah. Same thing for the marathon. Uh, what was previously a world-class time is now a top 20 time maybe. And so everything's just shifted. And yeah. we spoke about it in the podcast. It's recalibrated the sport. And now everyone just gets on with that recalibration. And by next year, this time, people will probably have either fatigued of the conversation or they will have forgotten that it's even there. Yeah. And on we go. It just, just doesn't sit easy with me. And maybe, maybe in 2021, studies will be done. Because the other thing, the other thing, COVID would have cost is the ability to test stuff. Because mm. you couldn't, you couldn't leave your house. How are you going to test twenty athletes on a treadmill? Yeah. Now, people will start have have begun doing that. So mm. somewhere in the world, probably ten different places in the world, there is a biomechanics lab that's doing the research on the Adidas mm. versus Nike versus Saucony. And by June next year, we'll have a study to talk about. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, I suppose the shoe wars are now a reality, and I know we've run some stories in Runners World magazine here in South Africa, and of course in the US around the shoe wars and how it's been developing. And it is something that I think, I guess, is exciting in some sort of way because it's becoming like Formula One because technology now makes mm. a difference in running. And we always thought that running was the one sport that was going to be immune from technology because it was just the legs right. moving faster than another. Mm. I think cycling, to some extent, is almost the purest form of sport because. You know, we often a lot of the arguments against um, uh, for this shoe technology is people saying, "Well, you're always looking at towards advancements. You always want to be better." In cycling, actually, cycle, bicycles have looked the same pretty much, and there are strict rules regarding what a bike can weigh and how it looks and how it's designed. I mean, yeah. there are limits. It wasn't always that way, right? No. Do you remember, remember Chris Boardman yeah. lapping everybody in Barcelona yeah. because he had that. It was Lotus, I think. Mm, Lotus, yeah. And uh, cycling, to its credit, said, "Hang on." Yeah. We're going to actually draw some solid lines yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, swimming did the same thing because they went through it. That's right. Uh, may, and maybe in 10 years' time, we'll say, okay, athletics did the same thing also. But for me, they've just said, they've, mm. they've, set the, they've drawn those lines too far apart. The box is too big. Mm. And Jeff alluded to it, but for me, it's still the biggest dilemma is responders versus non-responders. And so when those studies come out, the first thing I will be looking at is not the average benefit you get. Mm. I'm not interested that the next percent gives you 5.2% and the mm. Saucony one gives you 4.9 and Adidas 4.95, whatever. Mm. Who, mm. Like that's, of course, interesting. But what I'm really interested in is that runner A got 9% better and mm. runner B got 1% better. Right. Because that's such a big difference that literally if you swap shoes between those two runners, you'd get a totally different race result. And that's not 
why I watch the, the sport. Yeah. So the, the responder-non-responder range is, for me, the most intriguing question moving forward. Oh, that'd be interesting to watch in 2021. Right, so our last uh, voice note we got from Yanis Pizzolatis, who is a sports scientist based in the UK. Ross, just tell us a little bit about Yanis. I mean, he's a, quite a vocal person in the in the world of sports science. Yeah, Yanis is one of the most interesting guys in the field, for sure. And I've known of him for 20 years and known him for maybe 15 He's got South African links, grew up here, actually. Good man. And you'll hear his accent sounds, it's got definitely a hint, more than a hint of South African <laughs> in it. Uh, extremely energetic, extremely driven. He does so many things, it's unbelievable. Like the guy works on a different time scale to the rest of us. He must have 30 hours a day, not 24. <laughs> um, and yeah, Yanis and I go quite a way back and some funny arguments we've had. In, in 2016, Dennis Kometo broke the world marathon record and for the first time people started to say sub two and Yanis launched a campaign campaign called the sub two hour marathon and he was going to bring sports science and one of my bugbears is that sometimes I think sports scientists overrate their value a little bit we're going to make things different and better um, on actually what's quite a robust system I think the East mm. Africans know how to produce fast marathoners and so I wrote something then on Twitter somewhat cheekily and I said that you could do this, the sub two hour marathon, if you throw enough gimmicks at it, maybe you run them downhill with a giant fan on a truck blowing them along. Mm. Anyways, <laughs> unknown to me, the New York Times interviewed Yanis a couple of days later and they asked him about that quote and he, and he said, no, you can't really pay attention to what an armchair professor said. <laughs> and we la I'm laughing about it now and I know Yanis, I know, I'm hoping Yanis listens to this. Yanis will laugh as well because then a few years later he saw me and he's like, I'm so sorry I said that. I said, no, it was actually pretty funny. For a while it was my Twitter bio. So that's right. and, then, <laughs> and then Tim Noakes called me a porch dog and I changed it. But Yanis, anyway, Yanis is extremely enthusiastic. He's very energetic. You see him at conferences all the time and he's just he's on the go all the time. And he's got a big interest in marathons, doping, transgender issues, which we've already covered. And he, I think, speaks about that in this, in this clip. Just really, it's about sporting integrity. Here it is, Yanis Pizzolatis. 2020 will in future years be referred to as the anus horribilis, to quote a well-known Latin phrase. However, the COVID-19 pandemic has provided a real opportunity for reflection on the integrity challenges facing elite sport and sports medicine. The imposed lockdown in response to this global crisis has resulted in many sporting events being postponed or cancelled, including the 2020 Olympic Games. While this pandemic has overwhelmed an already fragile world sport, it provides an unprecedented opportunity for stakeholders in sport to learn vital lessons from COVID, to carefully examine unresolved integrity issues and develop creative and long-lasting solutions to integrity problems such as doping, technological fairness, and the fair integration of intersex and transgender athletes in elite sport. What is unprecedented but very positive during this pandemic is that science and medicine are moving at a speed I've never witnessed before. A vaccine for COVID in under one year? It is unprecedented also to see so many papers from scientists around the world collaborating in all areas of science, working together on this common cause. The main difference from previous pandemics are the readily available technologies that enable us to work from home teach students online and remotely treat patients in hospitals and care homes, all helping us emerge from this pandemic much quicker. It is essential that sport and exercise medicine 
embraces new technologies such as genetic sequencing, deep machine learning, artificial intelligence, wearable technologies, and matches the unprecedented levels of collaboration recently seen in response to the pandemic in order for sport and exercise medicine to emerge stronger from this global crisis. Finally, I am particularly honored and proud to share this message with you, the passionate listeners of the Science of Sport podcast, which for many of us has become the guiding reference for sport and exercise medicine. Thank you, Ross and Mark. Thanks very much, Giannis. Of course, uh, he got my name wrong at the end, but he did apologise afterwards for getting my name wrong. It is Mike, not Mark. Yeah, That's, and we forgive him okay. because... We forgive him. Because of the compliments he paid <laughs> while, okay. he, while he did that. So. It's okay. I understand that Ross is the big star, not me. But anyway, <laughs> I'll take it. But, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about what he was saying is about how sports, sports science has developed. And one of the things that I picked up on that was around the tech space. And the tech space is interesting because you and I have been mm. through a journey of our own You've taken up cycling in a, in a reasonably serious fashion, become a bit of a numbers junkie. I was one of those people who had avoided those numbers for many years, well, and I've yeah. now become a convert to the numbers. Yeah. So my yeah. Strava numbers and what power output I have because I was an indoor trainer. So our ability to be able to be scientists ourselves, mm. if you're reasonably serious about your sport, has changed radically in the last year for me. Mm. And I think we're seeing this progression around the world. We see these devices like Whoop in the UK, where you wear a wearable tech every single day. A lot of these um, companies are producing stuff like this, mm -hmm. where you can monitor how you're feeling every day based on your sleep, based on your heart rate, all sorts of, so you literally can train and measure yourself as if you have a personal coach sitting next to you. So yeah. tech is allowing average people to probably perform at a much higher level than they would have maybe two or three years ago. Right, and COVID has forced, not forced, but has enabled people to use that tech maybe mm. earlier than they would have done without it because mm. now we've been stuck on our indoor trainers. I mean, that was certainly my, the catalyst for me cycling more was indoor trainer during lockdown, get a mountain bike, because I used to ride on the road, but now mm. mountain biking has become my thing. You say I became a numbers junkie. Let's not forget our earlier disclosed how I assessed risk in a restaurant based on density of people per square meter. So I think I've always been a numbers junkie, but one of the things... But you haven't necessarily assessed the number of tree stumps <laughs> on a particular section of single track as you came off quite badly last week. Well, that, that's... <laughs> I, I, that's There's no science to that. That's the problem is I don't assess the tree stumps enough to avoid them <laughs> on the bike and keep the keep the rubber side down. The, the it's one of the fun things actually for me personally this year has been cycling with you and seeing mm. how immersed you got into the data, <laughs> because you do your is it once a week with your brother in England on Ruby? Yeah, and then obviously we check Strava out every time we ride and we're looking at the numbers yeah. and so it's it's pretty cool. It's oh, an immersive experience and you can see the value of it as well, if it's used yeah. properly. Some of that tech's been interesting. Um, when COVID began, a number of companies were promoting their devices as a way to diagnose that you had it because they were saying that your body temperature would be slightly high and your heart rate would be elevated. Mm. There's about 50 things that could cause that, <laughs> yeah. COVID being one of them. And so as a specific diagnostic tool, they were pretty useless. Yeah. And I think the thing is that I'm... I wouldn't say looking forward to, in fact, the opposite, is that with more technology, there'll be more scope for nonsense claims. And so, yeah. so the technology is always a useful tool, but it's often oversold. And so there's always something in that about how do we filter the signal from the noise? And in actual fact, yeah. a couple of our patrons, Chris James, one of them, and a couple others, um, I'll find some names for you there. Chris made the point actually, and, and I'm gonna probably reveal my lack of knowledge. He says, 
uh, an area he's potentially looking to in for his master's research in 2021 is heart rate variability. You know, so that's not necessarily what you're risking heart rate is, but it's the variability in your heart rate, yeah, which is a indirect or direct measure of your sympathetic stress versus uh, parasympathetic relaxation states. Mm. And that's, that's become quite a useful tool to guide those training decisions. So yeah. that was one example of that. Martin Roman said the same thing, take a look at heart rate variability. So we'll have to do an episode yeah. on that. And in fact, all these technologies, how well do they predict performance? How well do they track overtraining? We got a few comments from our patrons about overtraining and, and what science exists around avoiding it. So th these are very interesting topics, which I think COVID has made people more aware of and more equipped to assess. Yeah. Mm. One of the things Yanis also talks about is the integrity of sport. We've had a chance to maybe look at those things more in depth this year as we talked about the transgender debates. Mm. Um, but one of the issues, of course, is the doping side of things yeah. because there are some integrity issues there that they never seem to go away, I guess. Yeah, aside from COVID, I mean, we, yeah. we've already discussed how COVID and lockdown would have affected yeah. anti-doping and therefore integrity. Uh, one of the things Yanis was involved in, one of the many things, was trying to develop new methods that are better than the biological passport. So the biological passport principle is that we're gonna track you long-term and we're gonna look for changes from your baseline because physiology doesn't behave erratically. It's, it's got some sort of predictable pattern. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go up and then down by too much from one week, one month to the next. And the passport is looking for unusual increases or decreases in things like red blood cells, uh, off scores, reticulocytes. What Yanis is saying is what's the next thing? And he alluded in his clip there to like using molecular methods. And one of the things he's been involved in is trying to test the messenger RNAs and what's called metabolomics or proteomics, where when you dope, that drug exerts its effects on your body by changing the way your body's DNA expresses into RNAs into proteins, right? Yeah. So basics of molecular biology here. Yeah. What's so, what's the end result of that? The end result is new protein. So in the case of Which EPO, is the end result of that is better performance because okay, the, right. because red blood cell is one of those proteins. So okay. EPO is the drug. The outcome is red blood cells, but that happens through a sequence of things that involves DNA, mRNAs, and so on. And you can actually find those mRNAs. They're almost like shadows. Mm. So you don't have to find the person there. You have to just see his shadow, and you know he was there. And that's what Yanis is trying to trying to be involved in at the moment is <laughs> a test that would then perfectly identify whether you've taken synthetic EPO as opposed to natural. And and that's the theory. Cool. I don't know how close we are to that. Same thing, by the way, for concussions. Mm. New in future, I suspect concussions might be diagnosed by looking at mRNAs, um, because when you have damage to the brain those those markers appear in the blood in the saliva potentially so that might be a future of diagnostics including anti-doping so i mean diagnostics so, itself is a fascinating space because oh, yeah. self-diagnostics yeah. is obviously a rapidly yeah. evolving section uh, mm -hmm. as you say being able to you know, we, we, we see diagnostics every day when we go to restaurants because you've got thermometers yes. that tell me my temperature is 32 Which degrees. Which are absolutely useless. Which are useless, but, but there's still an element where we are self-diagnosing ourselves and we, the more that we know about our bodies. The one thing I know, if anybody had asked me a year ago, what is my average temperature, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you. I would have thought it would be, you know, 30, is it 35 or 36? I don't know. Yeah. Now I know that it's 36.6 is probably pretty much my average yeah, temperature yeah. every single day. Yeah. But but by knowing that, we kind of are able to assess things like if we've got a bit, if we're 37.2, 
um, and our heart rates are slightly higher, maybe we're a bit tired or we've got a mm. light infection. Yeah. Those sort of things I always find fascinating because we don't need to go to a doctor to, do, to make some self-assessments. Right, and those are the kinds of things that your devices, whether you're on Polo or Garmin or Sunto, mm. whatever it is, those are the kinds of things they're using mm. to diagnose your training status. I mean, that's a diagnosis too. Overtrained, mm. undertrained, maintaining, performing, whatever it is. Mm. Strava does the same thing, I think. Uses, yep. a, uses a combination of time and heart rate or intensity estimates to work out but your never gets the power load. right on the segments. Yeah, that's... Come on, Strava, man. You've got to think there's a better way to do there it. There must be a way to do it, that, I know. That's the thing that frustrates me. Yeah. It and gives me 500 watts for a downhill section, and I'm like, how does that work? But anyway, <laughs> I digress. It gives me 50 watts for the hardest exactly, upper section I've ever done. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Come on. So the whole application of technology to sports is an area yeah. to go into, uh, for sure. Many of you have raised that because I think people are fascinated by it. Mm. People are also put off by it. I know many coaches, particularly in team sports, who actually see it as more of a burden than a benefit. Mm. And I think that's because it hasn't been done very well. Mm. Um, not w I'm not quite willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, to chuck out the principle with the misapplication of data. But I think in many instances, data gets applied badly, mm. then wrong decisions are made. And that's always the trick is if you, if you have a test that's not perfectly specific, in other words, elevated heart rate, higher temperature, oh, I must be sick or overtrained. Actually, it could just be you had a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> so now you're a bit flushed and the caffeine has knocked your heart yeah. rate up. Yeah. Now you make a decision based on what's actually a false result. Mm -hmm. And then you're actually worse off than if you just thought about how good you feel or how bad you feel. So that's the tricky thing for everyone to juggle mm. on technology. But in any event, um, yeah. yeah. So Sounds Janus, like subjects for a good podcast at some point throughout well, 2021. Got, literally, I mean, <laughs> we got 30 or so replies to a tweet. 15 or so from our patrons commenting and so on and, and so many of them are linked to like a Christie, a Trent and so on so it's pretty cool we're all on the same page Yeah. but I mean we, we've got we've got a podcast a week based just on what you've given us so it's cool well the Science of Perfect Training was a podcast we did earlier this year February the 26th I think it was our podcast number 31 or so and uh, that was uh, one of our most popular throughout the year and I think it is interesting that people always want to figure out ways of training better mm. But uh, we're about to wrap up for uh, 2020. We've got one more podcast, which we'll hopefully be sending out in the next couple of weeks, which is more of a long-form interview that we did uh, with a guy who uh, rode for, what was it, 7,000 kilometers over three months. And we did a two-part interview with him, and we'll be introducing that in the next couple of weeks as a bit of a, a time to tide us over the holidays. Um, but uh, at the moment, we're looking forward to 2021. As you can see, a lot of the people that are contributing towards this podcast, lots to look forward to. The Olympic Games are a big part of it. Ross, I know that I'm looking forward to you falling less on your bike um, and maybe getting a little bit closer to you on the climbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. And thanks from me to the listeners, the engagement adds the value to these i mean it's not just mike and i talking here once every in a while it's actually the the constant feedback and discussion that's the yeah. the biggest value so thanks very much i hope you get your christmas stockings full of great gadgets and devices and good legs and training time and we will speak to you again next year so join us then yep happy holidays to everybody and bye for now Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.